Hello and welcome to the Conscious Diva podcast. I'm Tatiana Wright and joining me today is Murray Hittery. Murray is a multidisciplinary artist, a tech pioneer, an integrated meditation teacher and an acclaimed musician. He's also the creator of Mind Travel, a purpose-driven experiential music company that provides an experience for people to feel and heal through music. It is my great pleasure to introduce and interview Murray Hittery. Welcome, Murray. Thank you, Tatiana. It's a real pleasure to be here and uh, share this time with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, really, the pleasure is all mine. I wanted to just start with something really simple and basic and, and have you give a quick overview and explanation to what mind travel is and what exactly an experiential music company means. Yeah, it's a great place to jump in. You know, mind travel is, as an experience, it's about, I would say about five, six years old since I introduced it publicly, but it's been really a lifelong journey for me, having started really when I was a teenager and, and growing and evolving from there. But uh, in terms of what, what people experience now, my intention with it and what I aspire to do as an artist, as a musician, is to really transport people um, during the experience, uh, to create some kind of opening for wonder, uh, an opening for awe, and a real exploration where it marries the internal world that we all have with the external. And it's in that seeming separation where a lot of dissonance in our lives is created. We, th we look out, we okay. see something happening in the world and we feel a certain way about it, especially if it's a, a negative kind of feeling we have about it. So we have this dissonance with the outside world, but really what's happening on the outside is a consequence of our kind of beliefs and thoughts on the inside, right? So mm -hmm. if we can create a practice, create a space in which to reframe kind of how we think about these things, how we feel about these things, then we can come to the external world uh, seeing it anew. Yes. And that's, that's really the core idea of it. And, you know, it developed from my own kind of desire to do this, right? My own sense of, I need to process what I'm going through emotionally uh, and otherwise. And, you know, perhaps I don't have the words to so easily express it eloquently or effectively even, um, you know, having the emotional literacy to actually identify everything you're feeling. Well, when it's something simple, you know, sure we can all do it, but what if it's something really complicated, really tangled, you know, like grief, right? Or, mm -hmm. you know, other very difficult emotional states. Well, then we need a different technology for it, right? And mm -hmm. turns out that music is a very powerful and effective technology, and I really use that word quite, quite deliberately, quite specifically, that it's a technology because it's a, it's, it, music is the language um, of emotion. Yes. And because emotions are multi-layered and and the, you know, the, the emotions themselves are tangled and multi-layered, so is music a multi-layered and, and multi-dimensional language. And so it can express what we have a difficult time expressing through linear language. Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually read a, a quote from somebody who, who, who did describe all of the things you've just explained, and thank you very much. And it's Christy Edmonds, the executive artistic oh, wow. director okay. from UCLA's Center for, you know, for the Art of uh, Performance. And she sums up your work so eloquently, and I would just like to read it aloud to, to listeners, and then we'll come back and talk about exactly what the practice involves with mind travel. 
So Christy Edmonds says, Murray is a pianist and an entrepreneurial genius at threading together lots of bodies of knowledge, virtuosic in his relationship to math, physics, and philosophical practices. What he does in his concert is weave together segmented camps of Eastern practices, philosophy, and meditation. Through music, he brings us together across many cultural forms and modalities. Mind travel is truly like putting a gift of the sublime into our beings. When I heard her speak these words, I, I immediately thought, wow, that's just so beautiful. It really sums up so eloquently what you do. And, mm. and so now I'd like to come back to that. Let's explain further this, this idea of experiential music because this is, this is a, an experience that people have. It's live music, it's real-time improvisations, mostly, right? You have some, some where you pre-recorded them uh, and like your hikes and right. it's live to headphones, right? So talk about this, this experience just to give people who may not be familiar um, describe what goes on. And let's maybe just start with the live to headphone silent hike um, right. example. So I'm, I'm very much interested in creating these systemic experiences, right? Meaning they're kind of multi-ingredient um, mm -hmm. experiences that involve, you know, different elements coming together to mm -hmm. form something very unique and something special. So we bring together, you know, music, technology, nature, community, right, art, yeah. visuals, all in one experience. So as an example, um, one of the iconic experiences of mind travel is, you know, these outdoor music immersions, right, where mm -hmm. there'll be, you know, a grand piano, uh, an electric one out on, you know, the beach or in the middle of Central Park and in the field. And all the participants, the audience, mm -hmm. um, are gathered around and they're given wireless headphones and the reason for the wireless headphones is because when I first had the idea some years ago to bring the audience out into nature, right? So kind of, I started out in theaters, right? And, you know, theaters are wonderful kind of black boxes, magical spaces to create, you know, fantasy and transport people. However, there's kind of a, a lack of freedom there because you're kind of in your seat the whole time. Yeah. So there's very little movement you can express yourself with. And... Um, you don't have the element of nature there. So if you want to evoke nature, you have to kind of reference it, but it's not obviously present in the theater. But also the aspect of um, community, it's communal experience. Everybody's, everyone's sitting in their seats. They're not necessarily having the singular experience that you now have added on with headphones. That's, so you're right. this idea of um, we're all one, we're all united, but yet you can still have this profound experience and it takes them deeper. At least I think so with the headphones. Absolutely. And so when we, when we first went out into nature, the first one was at the beach in Santa Monica in California. And I said, well, how are people going to even hear the piano? And, and could I even get a piano out there? And Steinway, who I love and loves me, but they wouldn't bring, they wouldn't let me bring their pianos out to the beach. It'll just yeah, understandably. <laughs> yeah. So I had to come up with another solution. And so I started with my electric grand piano. And then I said, well, speakers are just not going to sound great. You know, if you're a rock band, you can certainly kind of overwhelm people with sound and it'll, it'll, it'll kind of go across the beach. But if you're a pianist, acoustic player, if you're playing something that, you know, has real shape to it and real quiet parts, and it's very difficult to translate that and transmit that in an open air environment, especially mm -hmm. at the beach, which is very noisy with the wind and the sound yeah. of the ocean. So I said, well, what if I put the whole audience in headphones? 
and we tried it out, we experimented with it, figured out the technology, and now we do these, you know, just massive uh, experiences with hundreds or thousands of people, depending where, from the beach to Central Park and, you know, many other places. And it gives the audience, the participants, this idea that, like, everyone has a front row seat. No matter where you are, right, everyone is getting the same exact um, acoustic experience. So, you, you know, the, the, the magic is that you'll see people with the headphones, you know, many of them are, of course, sitting around, you know, the piano, but then you'll see people get up and find their own movement and, you know, walk the beach or the park, and you'll see them in the water up to their knees, you know, and listening to the music, taking in the ocean, taking in nature, and taking in a very personal, very intimate moment. Um, and then something really just beautiful happens when they look around and, and you realize that you're having this individual intimacy, this in, intimate moment with the music, with nature, with your thoughts, with your reflections. And you look around and realize that everyone's having that same intimacy mm. in togetherness. Yeah, and it's that beautiful balance of kind of your individual experience, very intimate, and the collective experience, which is very, very powerful of a realization. And, it, and that's something that you really can bring forward with you into your life. So that, that would be one of your silent piano experiences, right, on, on a beach as an example. Right. What about the silent hike? Do, do you bring a piano to, to the, the end location and play and people walk and find you at the end? Or, or is it pre-recorded and you I, hide? I, I have been known to do that. Uh, we, actually, we actually once um, uh, carried the piano up to the top of a mountain. Wow. And, and then I then and then we all hiked up. We had, I don't know, probably about 200 people um, hiking a single track trail um, in succession to the top. And the piano was there for sunset concert. Um, oh, so I have beautiful. done kind of crazy things like that. But um, having having said that, most of the silent walking or silent hike experiences, um, what I do is I curate a recording of mine specifically for that landscape. So, for instance, if it's a if it's in the mountains, I might curate a specific, you know, soundtrack that evokes that. If it's by the water, by a lake, by the ocean, I might evoke a soundtrack that kind of evokes the ocean. Mm. Um, so it just depends on kind of the the landscape. But I'll curate the music, and then we all start at the same meeting point, usually at the trailhead or uh, at a parking lot, and then uh, we hand out the headphones so that everyone is in the same you know experience. Yeah. And then I actually will give guided narrative, spoken word, poetic, and, you know, just a narrative that opens up uh, the space for people. And then what about the floating meditations? Because uh, this is, uh, I, I know I had asked you if you find pools where they have speakers and built into them, and, right. <laughs> and, and, and you don't, but you, you have something better than that. You know, I always keep thinking of new ways to, as we said in the beginning, transport people. Yeah. And nothing felt like it would be more immersive, right, of an experience than literally being immersed in water. And yeah. so, um, you know, I, I just love the water, the ocean, rivers, etc. So I, I said, well, what if I put the entire audience in a massive swimming pool? And then I, I actually built and placed speakers, uh, waterproof, underwater specific speakers, and we place them in these pools that we go to. Um, and, you know, some of them are massive, like, you know, we do them in Olympic sized pools with, you know, upwards of 200 participants at the same mm. time. So they're just these collective, beautiful immersions and everyone's, you know, floating completely still and they hear the music only when their head is tipped back, lying on their back, looking at the stars, looking at the sky. 
and listening to the music, which actually goes through the water quite efficiently. You know, mm. sound travels through water uh, about four times, over four times more efficiently than air. So you wow. actually hear it. Yeah, you actually hear it um, crystal clear. Um, and it has a, a bit of a kind of ethereal sound to it, but mm. it's, it's clearly the music and, and very dreamlike. And, uh, and then after the, after the floating meditation, I invite people to freely play and move in the water. And of course, by definition, no one's speaking because you can't speak underwater. So it, the whole thing is silent with the music permeating the water mm, and the wow. vibrations, especially of the bass speakers in the water, literally go through you. You feel the vibrations going through your whole body. So it's, it's, it's a very physical experience as well so it, it unites oh, the physical the emotional the spiritual into one uh, unified experience well I, I definitely want to try one of those once um we're able to uh, meet publicly again um have you have you done that in a pond <laughs> by any chance like you know in, in, I've, I've i've looked at that there's, a, there's usually two problems with ponds well besides <laughs> getting access to a pond right you have to, like, yeah. someone has to give you permission to use a pond but besides that they're they're either you know very cold mm -hmm. um and so then you have to you know get you know super thick wetsuits and stuff like that certainly okay. possible um so you know that's the issue with with ponds is is that and and they're also you you know many times kind of murky and hard to see in so mm -hmm. you know you may want to float in it but you may, may not want to swim underneath and stuff like that so okay. um but you know certainly lakes like you know i've thought about doing it in like a you know like a, a nice crystal clear lake um, and again, we just put wetsuits on and, and it's just a, and, and actually the cold, as long as you can bear it is quite healthy for you. It's very, very good for you. It, um, it reduces inflammation. It reduces stress. Um, it actually helps with fatigue. So it, it's actually a wonderful, uh, therapy in and of itself, right? Cold therapy, yeah. water, water immersion therapy. So something I would, I would actually highlight as a feature, uh, in that case, but in any, in any case, people want to do want to be comfortable. So I understand. Yeah, that. for sure. Well, I was just curious because I mean, I, I, it felt like a natural sort of next progression in, in, in the, the nature immersive experiences, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking to bring it actually to um, like places like Tulum uh, in Mexico, where yeah. the ocean is actually quite warm and mm. calm at the same time, right? You yes. don't have those, you know, relentless, you know, waves that would kind of, you know, uh, you know, um, j jostle people around. That would be amazing. So I could place the, I can actually, and then the waves won't be moving the speakers around and they won't get tossed and turned. It, it's pretty calm actually in many, many lagoons and beaches in Mexico and, and, and you know. Yeah, in a cenote, be, that would be incredible. But a cenote would be over the top. Oh I mean, my that would God. Be the, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Be, okay, yeah. Let, let me know when you do that. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just work on that, cenote. <laughs> oh, for sure. So I wanted to come back to your story a little bit. Um, and, and the reason I wanted you to just explain mind travel up front is because it really, this is a full circle story with you beginning playing music when you were a boy, five or six years old, and knowing when you were younger that you wanted to be a composer, but um, that didn't really work out for you, right? When you had finished university, you went off and started a pretty successful tech company. So can you talk about this path of, you have this tech background, which clearly you've brought into mind travel today very successfully, but you also have this other path, your spiritual path with your interpersonal work that found you in Japan learning a whole other instrument, the shakuhachi, which really, I don't know how many Westerners are familiar with this instrument. The only reason I know of it is because my grandmother's Japanese and I have a personal love of Japan and all things Japanese. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes. You know, I grew up playing the playing music since I was five years old. I, 
my parents introduced me to the cello when I was five and the piano when I was six. And music was just a, a part of our whole family. All my siblings played. It was just something that, you know, my mother especially was very, um, you know, keen on having all of her kids, um, you know, have music in their lives. And, you know, we would go, we, I grew up in Brooklyn and the far side of Brooklyn, not, not the cool part where there's like artisanal chocolates and pickles, but. No hipsters. You know, yeah, yeah, none of that. I felt like I was on the far side of the world, um, mm -hmm. even though I was 20, 30 minutes from, you know, one of the epicenters of the world, New York City, Manhattan. Yeah. Right? But I grew up in a very insular community, um, an Orthodox Jewish religious community. Mm -hmm. So things in the outside world seemed very far away, right? Seemed very distant. You know, to my parents' credit, um, they did introduce us all, all my siblings to music. We went into Manhattan to go to the symphony, to go to the Philharmonic, to go to museums, to go to theater. And they did expose us to that. And I think that early influence really kind of made me comfortable with that world, with that language. And uh, by the time I got to high school, it was very clear to me as, you know, I started to not only play music, but I was writing my own music. I really felt like I had my own thing to say with music. You know, whatever that was going to be in high school, it was, you know, professing my, you know, undying and eternal love for one girl after the other. But uh, that was high school. And uh, but I knew I had my own kind of style of voice or, or something to say. And and of course, it wasn't until years later where it really started to flourish. But in terms of um, kind of music as a life expression, I, I really viewed it as as my religion, if you will. Um, the, the religion I grew up in, uh, there's, there's a beauty to the culture of it and to the connection of family. But for me, the kind of existential questions and that, that kind of feeling of, you know, that I was looking for of, of, you know, what is my place in the universe that we at some point usually all go through, um, wasn't being satisfied by that tradition. And so I started to seek at a young age, probably around 16, um, I started seeking elsewhere and, and getting my hands and reading as much as I could, particularly Eastern philosophy, which is what, you know, led me to, to travel uh, in that, that direction uh, sometime later. I was 18 at that time. And so Japan, I, I, I was only a couple of years later, probably around 20, you know, years old, I was in Japan for a while. And by that point, I was already um, studying Aikido, the Japanese uh, martial, martial art, arts. which is a very spiritual practice. While it's a physical martial art, it really is rooted in a spiritual tradition. Yes. And so I was, uh, I, I was invited to study in Japan at the, you know, original school where Aikido was founded. It was just a, an incredible life experience uh, for a little Jewish kid from Brooklyn, New York. So how did you come to the, discover the Shakuhachi then? And then I, because I was already in Japan, after my formal studies there at the school, I, I got to travel around the country for a number of, of weeks. Mm -hmm. And then traveling around the country, I was in Kyoto, and then I, I heard the flute being played, and I just fell in love with it. And then I sought out in Kyoto one of the top makers of the flute, and I, I purchased a flute. And I just want to tell people, it's, it's actually a Japanese bamboo flute that looks more like a long recorder versus a traditional silver flute that would be played on the side. That's right. It's, it's, it's one of the most simple and beautiful looking flutes. It's only five bores or five holes. And, you know, it's a, it's a as you're saying, this kind of straight vertical bamboo, you hold it to your mouth with mm -hmm. 
with no, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very open embouchure at the top, kind of just a hole at the top, kind of like blowing across a soda bottle, you know, or a yeah. water bottle, right? Um, when we were kids, it's kind of a little bit like that, although a lot harder, but it's so simple that <laughs> it's deceiving how difficult of an instrument it is to play. Yeah. And, it's just kind of know, a slit, isn't it, at the top? You have to really purse your lips in such a way that you can produce the air that, that captures, is, is caught by the instrument. That's right. It's, a, it's, it's, it's probably, a, you know, you have a 1% kind of allowance of, of, of getting the sound or just not getting the sound. And it's, it's, uh, it's, very, it's a very delicate kind of balance. So it's an incredible, incredibly intricate um, instrument. And, you know, one that they say takes sometimes up to six months just to get a proper sound out of. Mm. Uh, so here I was with this flute and I came back to New York and I looked for a teacher and I was lucky enough to find an incredible teacher. And then over the years, I had a, a two, two different teachers that were you know, just both you know, two of the best in the world. And uh, the music that we studied was the, the repertoire of the, it's called Hankyoku, which is the, the tradition of music written by the Zen monks back in Japan of the usually about the 17th, 18th century. Mm -hmm. uh, and they wrote these pieces as these musical meditations. And the music itself would kind of inspire um, enlightenment, as it were. So that's the, that, that's, that's the kind of idea behind it. And sometimes they'd actually walk through the countryside. Um, yeah. Walking meditation is a is a very deep part of, of the Zen Buddhist tradition and mm -hmm. other traditions as well. So they would walk the countryside, often with straw baskets on their heads, mm -hmm. um, you know, from village yeah. to village, temple to temple, and uh, playing the flute as they walked through the forests. Yeah, I, I can totally see you guiding one of your hikes with your flute, right. walking up as the piper, <laughs> without a basket, but right, like right, guiding. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Have you done that? Have you actually ever played? Done, uh, considered performing with one with your flute instead of the piano. You know, I, I haven't. Um, you know, it's it's harder than than one might think to play that flute. While you have to breathe too. Yeah, you've yeah. got the rhythmic. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I, I realized when I was saying that, I thought, oh, okay, you've actually got to breathe and walk. And and I, having done one right. of your hikes, you actually walk quite fast. So. Right. Right, right. You like you take and off. Plus, I like to do the narrative, so I like to speak and do the poetry and the narrative with yeah. the music. So, um, I haven't figured out how to play the flute and speak at the same time. <laughs> I'm sure somebody can do that. Um, so, coming back, you because you this is you have a, a a tragic aspect to your your personal story as well. And is it is it do you feel comfortable sharing the this aspect of what happened with your sister when you guys were in, in South Africa, because I feel like that's such a, yeah, that's fine. such yeah. a turning point, right. For your, your, your life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for, for years and years, music really was my companion in, in just being able to process life. Right. So, you know, when I, when I did graduate from university in New York, we mentioned, I did go into the technology world. Yes. And even there I had a piano in my office, in New York, um, and I would play at the end of every, you know, stressful uh, startup tech day, right? And that's how I just kind of, kind of worked it out of my system. Um, so it became like this daily practice for me, and and that's also, by the way, why what I do today is is so much improvised because it's through the improvisation that I'm able to allow whatever's there to work itself through. So I just kind of sit at the piano and allow whatever kind of wants to express itself to come out, trying to get out of my own conscious way and more into, into the subconscious expression. 
um, just allowing whatever's there to rise up and, and release through the music. In my mid-30s was probably the most difficult uh, time I went through, which was the tragic and sudden death of my younger sister. And so she's the youngest in the family. She was 23 at the time, so 12 years younger than me at the time. And uh, she and I were extremely close. I mean, uh, you know, she was beyond, you know, my favorite person in the world and, and someone that, you know, was near and dear to my heart. We had a very special and unique love connection and bond. And we traveled together often. And we were traveling at the time, it was uh, over the New Year's holiday, and we were traveling in South Africa. And there were some other friends there, and we were having a beautiful time uh, taking in nature and, and just taking in, you know, that incredible country. We were a group of us uh, traveling in the countryside uh, for the day, um, you know, going to the beaches near Cape Town and um, just, just enjoying a glorious day. And, and on the way back, literally just minutes from the hotel, uh, there was just a totally freak accident on the, on the highway and, um, and she was killed instantly, uh, along with another friend of ours as well. So it was um, just, a, just a horrifying and um, tragic moment. Of course, I was there, so I you know, witnessed it and, and you know, had to deal with the aftermath of it, including um, not just dealing with what was right in front of me, but also uh, feeling the sense of, of having to call my parents uh, back in New York and let them know, let, letting them know what, what had just happened. And, and of course, that's a phone call I'll never forget. And then, you know, dealing with getting her, you know, body back to New York and, and gathering her belongings from the hotel and, you know, all those kind of steps to that, that, that just kind of add up to a very, a very difficult situation to, to really recover from. I mean, it's really, uh, it's quite something to go through those motions. You know, when I got back to New York and was starting to process it, you know, I was dealing with not just the, the grief and the, you know, the, the mourning, the bereavement process of my sister dying, but all of the kind of trauma associated with how she died, right? And because yeah, you saw and, it, right? You witnessed it. Yeah, and, and, and just my being there and what yeah. I experienced and what I saw and, and, you know, just all the elements of that. So there was just a lot there uh, to to get through, and you know I, I I quickly realized that in order to get you know to deal with it, I had to really work through it and not distract myself from it. And it's all too tempting to distract ourselves from really difficult emotions, really painful emotions. But I, I was resigned to the fact that if I didn't deal with it then, it would haunt me and I would deal with, be dealing with it in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you know, at some point. So I just really focused and said, you know, I want to just, you know, face this head on, but truly I didn't know how, like, I didn't know how I was going to get through it and how I was going to get my life back. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, even want to, you know, get up in the morning, let alone move forward in with a, with a healthy thriving life. I mean, it, it just was very much not clear to me how that was all going to happen. That uh, cavernous hole in your, in your, your being, your chest, yeah. you know, that you, you just really have no sense of how that would ever be filled again. So I just, but I just said, look, I'm just going to take one step at a time. Um, the, the first thing I did was uh, to, to realize that to have a healthy 
kind of emotional state, one needed to have a healthy physical state. You know, we all experience even on a simple, simplistic level, right? We wake up in the morning, we have a little bit of a, you know, kind of stomach bug or a headache or, you know, we're just not feeling ourselves. It's very easy to lapse into, you know, uh, some negative feelings about our lives or the world, right? Yeah, it's just, sure. it's just easy to do that. Yeah. Uh, but when we're feeling physically strong, we just worked out, we're like, on our game physically, suddenly the world seems a little bit more optimistic, a little bit of a better place, right? And understanding that dynamic, um, I said, look, I want to just maintain my physical health so that I have a shot, at least, of an emotional, uh, emotional health. You know, I was very lucky that one of my closest friends, he was at the time training for the London Marathon, and he would come to my house and pick me up at eight in the morning I mean, I didn't want to even get out of bed, let alone go for a run. But he just picked me up and we'd go for a run. And in the beginning, Tatiana, it would, you know, after an, after one mile, I would kind of break down and, you know, in tears and just I couldn't go further. But then that one mile turned into two miles, turned into four, turned into eight, turned into 12. And within three months, I was side by side with him running the London Marathon. Wow. And uh, it was something that I was able to just set that goal for myself and yeah. keep fixated on. And it would just get me out of bed every day. One of the last conversations with my sister, which was the night before we were having, her and I were having dinner, the two of us. And we actually talked about both of us starting to run when we got back to New York. So, so I kind of, you know, kind of mm. evoked her in that process. Beautiful. And by the way, I should mention that at that London Marathon, just a few months later, at around mile 21, I hear someone calling my name. Now I did have my name on my t-shirt to be fair, um, which they tell you to do for your first marathon because then, you know, the spectators kind of root you on and it. I mean, you know, it's ridiculous, it's but it, yeah. it actually works. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and then I heard at, at around mile 21, I heard my name emphatically and it, it, but you know, not a spectator, it was someone who knew me. And I turned to the side uh, where, where the spectators were and I saw my parents. They, they had surprised me, flown from New York all the way to London, Aww. and uh, they surprised me there and found me somehow. And uh, of course, I then, you know, just ran going. wholeheartedly to the Aww. finish line. And, oh, and you I, made me cry. That's beautiful. Well, it's a beautiful moment of healing yeah. and, and reconciliation and, mm. and really moving and forward. And for all of you, too, if you have your parents there as well, yeah. didn't feel that, that honor you're running together with your sister. Yeah. So it was a real yeah. healing moment uh, for all of us. And uh, at that time, I had grown a beard because I had, I had not shaven for that whole time. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I, my beard was like, you know, just I don't know, at least six inches, if not longer, maybe longer. And, and the next day... I went and shaved it off after the marathon, and, and then we all went to Paris to, you know, celebrate together. Oh, that's beautiful. Beautiful um, story. But so coming, so coming back to the healing process, yeah. you know, there was the physical aspect. Mm -hmm. And of course, that, you know, running in the marathon, of course, is very mental as well, because it is about getting into that zone and, and dealing with what comes up on those long runs. And then I coupled that, Tatiana, with music. And so... You know, I would sit down at the piano at the end of each of those days and I would just play and I would just play that pain out of me, uh, sometimes for an hour, sometimes for two hours. And then it just it just something I did to just just express it. 
And that's what I realized is that it's, it's about just getting that pain out of you. I realized that the intensity of the grief matches the intensity of the love you have for the person. And so what's available through that realization is that if you can kind of morph the grief back into the love from which it came, Mm. Then, then you can carry forward um, a, a real connection with the person in love, you know? Yeah. You know, we, we, we call it falling in love with someone, right? But we also fall in grief. It's falling in grief. That's what happens, you know, when someone close to us dies, expectedly or unexpectedly, um, yeah. old or young. Yes. You know, we fall in grief. It's like falling in love. It's the same thing. But we can then transmute it into back into the love because you know it's like energy can never be created or destroyed right it's like yes. it just it can't disappear right it just doesn't disappear mm-hmm. it, it has to turn into something yeah so the love turns into grief for sure uh, but then the grief can turn back into love it is love it really it's it, it, it is love i can't say it's not it's a very painful form of love but it is love and once you purify it like putting water muddy water through a filter the water's there it's just muddy so you have to filter it out to get the mud out which is that grief part yeah and then you're left back again with the purity of the water which you can drink again and that's the love of the person and even though they're not near, you know with you they are with you like that love is with you yeah I, that's a really beautiful way to describe it you know and um I can I can really feel when your your love for making magic for people, you know, you can you can feel how that has evolved into what you do for others through this, this transcendent experience that you've created with with mind travel. It's really magical. I discovered your mind travel foundation the other day and I I cried watching the videos about the elderly people who live in the senior homes and how moving that was for so many of them to experience what you're describing, but in different ways. Yeah. You know, each one of them had a different experience because some of them are at different levels of dementia. Others aren't there yet. They just can't care for themselves at home. But the music that you're creating evokes something inside of them that's so deep and so profound. And you can only call it love, you know, it's love. That's really beautiful. I mean, there's just, there, there's so much heartbreak out there. I mean, there's so many yeah. reasons to, to, to be heartbroken about the world, to feel that despair. Yeah. And, and people are going through such difficulty on an individual level. And we can show up and provide relief. We can show up and say, in whatever way we're saying it, that, you know, you're not alone. Um, none of us are as 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 alone as we may feel at times uh, understandably so yeah. um, but ultimately we're not and it's about communicating that yeah and meeting people not to distract them from their pain yeah right that's not what I, I don't think that's of service so to me it's about yeah it's about meeting them in their pain I mean, that's really what I try to do with the music. It's, it's meet people where they're at in their pain and let the music speak to that and then let the music lift it up. Let the music meet you where your pain is and then give you the tools for yourself to rise up from there. 
I mean, that's, I think that's the only thing that works. I mean, in my experience. Yeah, I think it's a, a shared yeah. experience as well. Looking at how many people have only, actually everybody only has positive things to say from, about listening to your music and through mind travel or just your performances in general. And it's almost like you're playing your music in a harmonious frequency. And so you've figured out how to tap into the exact healing frequency that just gets into people's hearts on a really deep level. Yeah, and, and you know, we're emotionally very dynamic systems. Um, our brains are dynamic systems. So music has to operate as a dynamic language. And it's not just, you know, any one frequency. It's the combinations of frequencies and patterns mm -hmm. um, that act truly as a technology to, um, to unravel and to dissolve um, what's there. That's, that's really what's, what's happening to heal and to process and to move forward. That's really the idea here is that we, we want to move forward. We don't want to stagnate uh, in the universe in nature. Stagnation is death. Um, you know, it's just not where life operates yeah. and certainly not in the past. So most of us show up in moment to moment in our everyday as the past. It, yes. We're just the past showing up in the present. Now, that's not usually too helpful because then we're just bringing in so many of our own patterns, our own pain into each moment. Yep. And, and that's filled with a lot of fear usually. So to the extent that we can put the past in the past, uh, we can then show up with more freedom in the present. And I want to ask you something. While you were going through your healing for your sister, did it, when did it occur to you, or did it occur to you that there was this law of nature through playing with music, through your interest in physics? Because as I shared with you and we spoke last week, um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I, really, I really feel like you're a modern day Nada Yogi. You have this amazing ability to heal people through your music. And so I, it made me really think about all of the things that you're interested in with you, the technology, you have this interest, this background, and you know, there's, there's definitely a mathematical side to your brain, right? And, and music, they said that they go hand in hand. But when did you realize, like when did you, or was it just you brought all of your loves together and went, wow, this, the music's healing me, I'm having this experience. What if I just played it like this? Or what if I, or let me look at how, how physics can affect, like when was this moment? How, how did this occur for you? You know, years before that, um, I had a couple of different experiences that were really transformational for me. Um, and they really informed kind of my connection with everything. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I could describe them as these, in, in a way, these kind of spiritual awakenings, if you will. One of them was walking through a park at the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens, um, just taking an, a, a normal afternoon stroll um, that you wouldn't think twice about. At the time, I was deeply into photography, and that was my visual way to represent things. And I actually include that photography now in my mind travel visual art that that uh, goes with music. But in any case, I was I was kind of walking through this garden path, and I I came across this one tree, and the, somehow the way it was lit 
the way the sunlight in the late afternoon, that golden sunlight was hitting it. Just imagine, you know, just thousands and thousands of leaves kind of shimmering mm -hmm. on this tree, just glistening in this beautiful, you know, basking in this beautiful golden light. And I quickly took my camera, raised it to, to take a picture of it as I would, you know, any other countless of times that I've done that. Yet something overcame me and I kind of froze in that moment, um, arrested by the moment, just kind of stunned by the moment. And I then looking through the looking through the uh, the lens of the camera, I then put it down a second and I just looked at the tree and it's as if time stood still in that moment and I was overwhelmed by the feeling of each one of these leaves kind of completely connected to the other and almost it, almost a hallucination of seeing all of it kind of blending together yeah. as one and seeing the energy moving through it in this unique way and it just like overwhelmed my breath even when I when I finally came to and it, I mean it couldn't have been more than a minute of that but it felt like an eternity I then said how do I capture that right with a camera that's about documenting what you see it's just mm -hmm. capturing light and I immediately started to move the camera with what I was feeling so documenting what I was feeling versus what I was seeing. Mm, and yeah. uh, at the time I was using, you know, it's film photography. There was you know, no digital photography at the time. And I, I went to the lab and I processed it. I took two rolls of film and I, and I took it out and I looked at them and I just started to tear because it's exactly what I saw in my mind. It really was this, this merging of energy, breaking down the form of things to just its energetic vibration. Oh, now, so that's a lesson I got, but to really get that at um, at an existential or spiritual level, mm -hmm. um, right, where the physical transcends form to understand the permeating vibration of all things yeah, and that everything is connected on that level. Like, you know, we can conceptualize that, but to, to truly get that, whether it's through an experience like I had, or whether it's, you know, doing psychedelics, I mean, whatever, you know, works for you, you know, th that's a powerful realization. It's a game changing realization. Yeah. And then it translates into everything else you do. So then I then took that into my music and I then began to have these, I mean, similar experiences with music. And it was years later, you know, I didn't, uh, the first psychedelics that I did was, actually after my sister died and it was about a year later with a very small intimate group of friends that kind of had experience with that that led me through it that enabled me through that modality to open up uh, in beautiful beautiful healing ways but those experiences i was then able to recreate to a certain extent not fully i wouldn't say fully but not in terms of the visuals that hallucination I, you know, <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah I, I understand yeah yeah but, but in terms of the in terms of of that kind of um, sensibility, mm -hmm. um, I've been able to replicate that in the music yeah. by kind of going deeper and deeper and kind of using the music to induce that kind of trance or flow state to mm. get deep in there. And then that creates this eternal moment that where time does really stand still. I mean, there's, there's times I'll play for an hour and it feels like, you know, was it 10 minutes or, you know, it just, you don't know, or, or vice versa. So it, it just is incredible what is available. So I, I did realize that powerful connection. So then, you know, when I did go through 
the grief with my sister, I was able to turn to music already with that sensibility, not knowing how it would fare in the battleground of grief, right? So it was really put to the test um, on a very deep level. And, and it did, not only did it work, but it was not just about surviving through it, Tatiana, it was about, like I was committed to thriving on the other end of it. If you don't distract from it, right? If you don't sedate yourself from it, drug yourself from it, drink yeah. yourself from it, whatever. Yeah. If you don't go into an unhealthy direction, if you actually use it as a, as a um, catalyst for transformation, yes. then it will. I mean, if you give it that permission, I mean, this is a really important point. If you give it that permission, meaning if you give the grief or whatever you're going through that permission, it will crack you wide open and yeah. bring you to your knees. But it's in, it's in the bringing to your knees that allows for a complete rediscovery. Yes. And that's what, and that's what happened with, with, with me. You know, if I didn't go through that grief, if my sister didn't die, you know, what would my life look like today? It's very actually very hard to know. I, I don't know. I don't know if I would be doing what I'm doing at this, at this intensity, at this level. Well, I mean, you can't really, you don't, you don't even need to ask that question. You know, at this point it's, right. she gave you a gift unbeknownst yeah. to you at the time. Yeah. That was an amazing gift. And we can never see in that moment. Yeah. Gifts and, of know, she's truly with me in each note I play. I mean, truly there. I really feel it. And I, I, I don't need to feel it in the sense of that, you know, some actual spirit of her is there. Yeah, it's, it's really profound. It's very deep. And she's always there with you. I totally, I completely understand that. And, and it's, um, you can, watching, when you play, you can see how you are, like, you can just see with your eyes closed how you're just feeling the vibe picking up on whether she's with you or the people in the room, the environment that you're performing for, you can, you can really see it, you know, and it's a, a really beautiful thing. The first time I saw you play, I thought, wow, something's really happening to him. Like what, what ha I wanted to know. I was like, where, what yeah. happened to you? Where, what has happened that may has, has transformed you on such a profound level that you're just really tapping in. It's almost like uh, I can see the, um, energy just literally flowing down yeah. into you coming down through your hands through your fingertips into the piano and it's really it's really remarkable and really really beautiful and I, I, there's a reason people have these incredible experiences when they listen to you play yeah. well and i think all of us have that ability to in our own unique way to experience that so mm -hmm. you know it's it's ultimately i think about how do we get out of our own way you know because it's truly us that stands in the way of channeling that beauty and that pure personal expression, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's the confluence of the personal expression and the universal expression, mm -hmm. right? I try to express, of course, my own sense and sensibilities and emotions and pains and joys. I try to express it all from the subconscious, right? From the part of me that's hidden and unknown and, un and unveiled. I try, to I try to unveil it, right? And I do that through this practice that personal side of me is a reflection of the universal. And that's what I'm trying to communicate is the collapsing of the universal and the personal together. And then the resonance with someone else, right, will be that they'll, because what they're resonating with is not just what I'm personally going through, but this universal context, which yes. we all go through, right? Yeah. We all go through some kind of grief and some kind of pain and some kind of heartbreak at some point in our lives, just different details. 
yeah. different names, different places, different people, right? I also would like listeners to realize that your music isn't depressing. I mean, we're, we, it's not, you're not playing, you're not downing people out. You're, it's extremely uplifting. And, and we'll hear some in a moment. But it's really, it, it's very uplifting and, and really takes people into a beautiful space. And whether they're connecting with something traumatic or, or other type of experience, it's personal for them. But, the, but what you've tapped into is you, through your music is really an awakening in each person. And so then they can go where they need to go when they start, when they put, have the headphones on. So you don't have to have had something, um, a, a sadness. You don't have to be carrying a sadness. It can be something else because this is music for all ages. You know? That's absolutely right. And you know, some people are startled at first when they, you know, listen without knowing anything about it for the first time, or they come to one of my live experiences about how, how evocative and provocative the music can be. They, they think, oh, maybe it's just some really chilled out, you know, meditation spa music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, it's definitely not that. No. Right? It, it actually evokes the journey of life, the arc of life, yeah. you know, the, the hero's journey. It's, mm -hmm. it's got its ups and downs and, and it returns and it, 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 it redeems and it absolves and it, it, you know, it has its melancholy and it has its triumph, you yeah. know, all kind of wrapped together. Yeah, you have all the archetypes in there. Absolutely. It's, it's really, a, it really is that arc, that journey. Uh, so, well, so let's, let's hear some. Absolutely. And this particular piece is called Pause. Yes, we'll hear an excerpt from Pause for Piano.
lovely, beautiful, um, always moving. I just wanted to ask you something. Did, you, did you study the frequency of Om by any chance? The interesting thing about the tradition of, of Om is, is that the reason why right in Sanskrit that's such a powerful mantra is because it is the physical movement and and frequent and because of that the shape of the of the full mouth in its spectrum of expression mm -hmm. right so it's um it's right you're moving the mouth yes. in all of its essentially its combination so it's a enveloping yes. uh, frequency um which is why it's it which is why they it's used as it's used right it's the mm -hmm. most holistic holistic one now what, what's what's by the way interesting from a physics point of view is that you know there there are, you know, incredible number of frequencies kind of built into, you know, different systems of the universe. I mean, take the Earth, for example. There's something called the Schumann resonances. Because of the electromagnetic field around the Earth, uh, there are certain long-form frequencies that circulate around the Earth mm -hmm. uh, because of the interaction of the ionosphere and, and different elements. So it's actually at 7.83 hertz. Um, and so okay. the, the actual Earth itself, herself, has this beautiful resonance that kind of shifts a little bit throughout mm. you know, the seasons. But when we think of music and frequency, we, we're always relating it to the human voice. And you know, if you look at folks like Verdi, right, the great operatic uh, composers, Italian mm -hmm. composers, um, in the 1800s, it turns out that uh, when they wrote these arias, the songs for sopranos to sing in their operas, they would specify that the orchestra would tune the note A to 432. Huh. They would uh, dictate that the uh, orchestra, when they tune up, would make A, right? They would all tune up to A being 432 because A was usually at 440, a little higher. But if it's a little higher, that makes the voice a little more strained, right? More constricted, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to sing higher, you have to constrict a little more. Mm -hmm. So if it's 432, it allows the soprano to have a more open voice, which has a warmer tone, which communicates more efficiently and effectively, yes? So it became such a big deal back then when opera was the ultimate of human expressions in the yeah. West, right? that Verdi actually got the Italian government. He petitioned parliament in Italy to mandate as law that 432 would be the pitch they tune the orchestra to. And, and it became a law in Italy. That's amazing. <laughs> what a great story. <laughs> yeah. And, and by the way, today, like uh, you know, orchestras like the New York Philharmonic and many of the big philharmonics, the symphonies around the country, they actually tune to 440, 444, even a little bit higher because when, when you don't have the voice element, right, they're usually not voices when they're playing these big symphonies. The music, when it's pitched higher, feels more energetic because it's mm -hmm. a little bit higher frequency. On some level, we subconsciously perceive it. Mm -hmm. So they tune to those higher frequencies to create a bit more of a higher energy feeling and impact on the audience. Interesting. Um, but, but that's part of the lost art of orchestras and music has been this 432 bit, which I think, again, is less about some kind of spiritual meaning and more about the actual physical, you know, physics impact on, you know, our bodies and our minds and, and on the voice of the, you know, the human singing voice of the soprano, which wow. really does sound different 
at those different, you know, it could be up to a quarter yeah, or a half a pitch difference. Okay. That's really the, the beauty of the tuning system, you know, of, of, uh, of music. It, it has these impacts, whether they're, you know, overt or understood or whether they're, you know, just being transmitted more subliminally. And so what's your favorite key to play in then? I have an affinity for B flat, B flat minor in particular, but B flat, uh, it's just something that permeates my music. And I, I usually start each piece with a B flat note, just hitting that one note, it almost acts like a clearing bell before meditation, mm -hmm. you know, in a temple. And it just clears the space. It, it's the anchor that, that drops me into my zone. You know, I'll, I'll often kind of joke that if you come to a mind travel experience, you know, all you need to hear is one note and, you know, you're good. Or you can just listen to the rest of it uh, since you're there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> How are we doing these virtually now? Because they, there are so many events that you were doing. So what's happening now with COVID? So, you know, leading up to COVID, I was actually on a massive 70 city tour. I was 10 cities in when this all came down and had to, of course, cancel the rest of the tour, like so many, and, um, and, and head home. We worked hard and created, you know, the technology to really, you know, take my Steinway piano in my living room and, you know, really bring it to your living room. Mm. Um, and the, the quality of the sound is, is incredible and it works incredibly well. So I now do live streams from my home. And then I also do the live silent walks virtually. So I'll walk in my neighborhood as people walk in their respective neighborhoods. And we just did one last Sunday. Um, we had 200 people <laughs> walking in their right. respective neighborhoods together. They use their own headphones from their own. Yeah, yeah, so so yeah, I just transmit it through the phone and we use whether it's Zoom or Instagram or YouTube, you know, I use different platforms depending on the experience, but you know, people can just use their phones and their own headphones and join us wherever they are in the world and you know, we post the schedule of those events and we have a robust schedule this fall and it's it's really bringing people together, yeah, even virtually is incredibly profound and powerful and works, you know, it does work really well. So, I, cool. I enjoy sharing those. That's yeah. cool. And I also noticed on the um, music.mindtravel.com site that people can purchase meditations. You've paired meditations with music. That's right. So there's music standalone that, you know, they could use for, for instance, for focusing at work. There's wonderful tracks for that on the website where you can just put it on. It just plays for hours and you're, you know, in your zone, writing, reading, you know, whatever you whatever work you're doing, it works wonders. I have tons of students who use it while they're studying. Um, cool. I mean, my, my, you know, lawyers have told me that they use it while writing up all their contracts and stuff. I mean, it's just, it's a very useful way to stay focused and not be distracted. Um, cool. There's also guided meditations where I use my voice and the music for various kinds of meditation, including sleep meditations. A lot of us have difficulty sleeping, especially these days with so much going on. So these are specific meditations uh, that are guided with music, my voice, with different techniques to help us kind of drop into sleep faster, more efficiently. Great. Is there anything else you'd, you'd like to share? No, it's just an open invitation for any, everyone in, to join us uh, both virtually and hopefully again in person soon. If you'd like to know more about Murray, uh, you can visit music.mindtravel.com. Again, that's music.mindtravel.com. And then there's also the mindtravelfoundation.org. And of course, Murray's personal site, which is Murray 
hitary.com and that's spelled M-U-R-R-A-Y-H-I-D-A-R-Y.com. Um, thank you so much, Murray. Thank you, it was awesome. a, real, a real pleasure and joy to speak with you. Yeah, thank you so, so much for your time today. Thank you. Beautiful.